Welcome to another Blaney's Podcast. Uh, we have with us in the Blaney's Podcast studio, Jim Edney, the uh, leader of the Family Law Group. Now, Jim, uh, we're following up on our first interview with a, uh, not a review, but just an overview of what we talked about first time around. And we talked about the situation of a, of a couple, an individual that comes to you and says, I want to separate from my spouse. Uh, and you remember what you said, what the word separate triggers can you can you perhaps we can recap that so the, the separation um, the issue of separation gives rise to a number of issues it uh, is the time in which the law kicks in to deal with support obligations in terms of custody of children and access to them is when the law kicks in it also is the date at which the property rights of the spouses tend to be crystallized well let's talk about the support obligations that are triggered by the, this separation now, firstly, the children's support. How does the court or how does the law determine what kind and the quantum of support that a person must pay to their, uh, to their child? So since 1997, we've had in Canada guidelines that uh, are federal guidelines under the Divorce Act to deal with uh, the quantification of child support. So what happens is as long as a child is with one parent at least 60% of the time or more, the child support guidelines are mandatory. Once the guidelines come into play, the basic function is to determine the income of the support payor, and then you determine the number of children, and it, you go across a table, and it will give you a number. That is a net after-tax number that is intended to provide for the basic necessities of a child's life food, clothing, shelter, transportation, things like that. And how does the court or the law determine who the support payer will be? Well, uh, usually it's fairly evident in most cases that the children will reside primarily with one parent. So if it's clear that, say, there is a, a situation where the children live with their mother and they visit with their father one day a week and alternate weekends, that is a situation that is clearly uh, one where the father has the children in his care less than 40% of the time. Therefore, the guidelines would be presumptively applied. Um, in situations where the children spend more than 40% of their time with the presumptive payor, Section 9 of the guidelines kicks in and uh, it's a more difficult analysis to determine what child support, if any, should be paid in those circumstances. It's quite complex, actually. Let's get back to the definition of child in terms of the support payments. A child, I presume, is for the purposes of support, is not only a child under the age of 18. Correct. A child entitled to support payments can be over 18 years of age, as long as they're in a course of education. And who is responsible to pay, let's say, for a secondary education for this child? Is that part of the support obligation of the payor? No. Uh, well, to be clear, it's not included in the table amount of support under the guidelines. These are what are called special or extraordinary expenses that are delineated under Section 7 of the child support guidelines, and we creative lawyers often call them Section 7 expenses because of that. Um, it is mandatory for parents to contribute to their children's post-secondary education under the provisions of Section 7 of the guidelines. And then we're talking about both parents now? Correct, both parents. And not just the payor, if you wish, the one who was pre uh, the presumptive payor in, in the first round? 
Correct. And and the presumption under Section 7 of the Child Support Guidelines is that the parents will contribute basically in proportion to their respective incomes. Now, when we talk about support for spouses, uh, are there guidelines in place for that as well? Um, it's a, a little more murky, Lou, when it comes to spousal support. Spousal support is discretionary. There are recently promulgated spousal support advisory guidelines that have been produced by the federal government, but it is clear that those guidelines are not mandatory or presumptive. They are purely advisory. So they're used as kind of a double check to see if what the judge uh, using their discretion has come up with uh, is within the reasonable range that the federal government thinks uh, spousal support should fall into. As, as in our discussion with custody, uh, support obligations can be addressed both by way of an agreement and by way of a court order. Absolutely. And I presume there's also alternative dispute resolution processes to address the issue of support. Certainly. That's uh, very common. Now, let's talk about the, the, the time when a spouse can get support. Is it at the moment there is a separation? Is that, is that when the other spouse can go, to, can go to that separating spouse and say, I need some money, please pay me? Yes. I mean, usually what happens is that the spouses uh, will make some kind of temporary arrangements themselves to continue the financial status quo that's continued in the family. Uh, most times there's a mortgage that needs to be paid, there's utilities that need to be paid, children's expenses need to be covered, and there needs to be funds available to do that. It is often the case uh, as well, Lou, that the spouses will remain resident in the same home, even though they're separated, for a period of time. And in, in some cases can be a considerable period of time. And in those circumstances, they need to work out a sharing arrangement as to how they're going to cover the expenses for the family. Now, in the situation where there is not a conciliatory, resolutory approach to this support issue, can you quickly go to court and seek some kind of order to pay some interim support? And how does interim support work? It depends on your definition of quickly, Lou. Uh, certainly the right to commence an application for relief under the Divorce Act and the Family Law Act exists immediately to a spouse as soon as there is a separation. However, the practical reality is that the provisions of the family law rules are intended to discourage motions or applications being brought on an urgent basis unless there truly is what is defined to be an emergency by the court. So a normal kind of garden variety need for support would not constitute an emergency that would allow a spouse to jump the queue and avoid the normal process that is supposed to be complied with. In Toronto, the process is that the first appearance on an uh, application for support is to be what is called a case conference, and that is an in informal appearance before a judge where all procedural issues are dealt with, all issues of disclosure are dealt with, and if the court has sufficient time, uh, they will deal with the prospect of settling the case. At present, uh, the Toronto court is pretty efficient, um, but the, the first case conference dates tend to be 60 to 90 days after the issuance of an application. So then when we talk about support payments by the payor, is there um, this model that we've heard of that uh, it depend needs versus ability to pay? Is that something that the court looks at, and is that the test? It's, it's 
part of the factors that are uh, looked at um, when assessing the objectives of a support order. So the court needs to look at the economic advantages and disadvantages of the marriage upon the spouses. It needs to look at the financial uh, ability of the putative payor to pay. It needs to look at the roles adopted during the marriage, the child care responsibilities undertaken, of course the ages and, and <laughs> if I may say this, the ages and stages of the respective uh, parties at play. Um, so of course need is the starting proposition. Uh, you can't get spousal support without need and then in order to receive it there clearly has to be an ability to pay. It, it's, uh, those factors are taken into account amongst many uh, when assessing whether there's an entitlement to support and what the quantum of support payable will be. Let me see if I can intersect two of these concepts that we spoke about and that is the uh, the obligation to pay if you have the ability to do so and the issue of disclosure. When we speak of disclosure, what, what do you mean by disclosure? Uh, disclosure tends to mean financial disclosure. So this would be basic disclosure that's set out right in the child support guidelines in Section 21, which would include tax returns, notices of assessment, financial statements for corporations, and so on. Um, that's a preliminary level of inquiry that might be sufficient in many cases. When you start talking about more complex situations, uh, you can get into situations where you need to examine bank accounts, credit card statements, and then when you get into corporations, you could get into examining what expenses are run through the corporation, uh, the general ledgers of the corporation, and uh, what amounts are being held as retained earnings in the company. When we talk about uh, the, the nature and notion of disclosure, I presume there may be some times when certain payors or spouses are less open to make full disclosure than other spouses are. Yes, we've certainly had that experience over the years. There are, there are some cases that are absolutely straightforward, and there's a lot of transparency when it comes to the financial picture. There are, as you imagine, circumstances in which people aren't quite so forthright, and it's necessary to conduct a full examination of their financial picture. Um, it, this could involve the uh, we as lawyers digging through the financial information, and of course, if the case is uh, warranting it, there are many instances in which we engage forensic accountants to assist us with that process. What are the consequences to an individual who does not make full disclosure from uh, as far as the court is concerned? Well, I mean, uh, the, the, the Court of Appeal has said non-disclosure is the cancer of family law litigation. So the court takes the issue very seriously. Um, it can be as simple as if there's a failure to make proper disclosure, it may impinge upon uh, that party's credibility and impact upon uh, the, the view of that party by the court. Can the court essentially impute what income might be to a spouse as a result of non-disclosure? Yes, absolutely, and that's often what happens. If the court is satisfied that there's been material non-disclosure or misrepresentation, it is open to the court to impute income to that person uh, for the purposes of determining their support obligations. Now, we've talked about notions and issues of support. What about separation of property or property division? How does that work in Ontario? I think the most common misconception that I'm faced with by the, the average client is that 
Um, they watch a lot of uh, television or movies that are produced in the United States and uh, take their view of what uh, family law property uh, is in Ontario from those uh, resources. And the reality is that we don't have the type of regimes that a lot of states in the United States have. Uh, we do not have a community of property regime um, similar to a, a state like California where when spouses marry, they gain an automatic ownership interest in the property of the other. We have a regime that provides for an equal sharing in the change in value of assets during the marriage. This is called an equalization of net family property and is applied under the provisions of the Family Law Act. And how does one determine the notion or the issue of valuation when it comes to that? Well, some assets are quite easy to value. Bank accounts, pensions, RSPs. It's possible to get a statement and value the assets. Other assets such as real estate, homes, and so on can be appraised or sold. Um, the, the difficult assets to value tend to be uh, shares in a private company. Right, and, and how does one go about appraising that kind of asset? Well, again, if the assets are of significance, the usual course for us would be to retain a forensic accountant to assist us with that exercise. So then if a, just for example, a stay-at-home mom was married to an individual who at the time of his marriage had a small two-man operation, by the time they separated, it's now a 40-employee company, does the increase of value of that company be split half between the two spouses? It, it doesn't exactly work that way, but the increase in value of that company, presuming there was an increase, would be included in that husband's net family property. The, the assets and liabilities are not divided in isolation. They are determined in the aggregate. And sometimes that can make a big difference because, for instance, in the circumstance you described, the company may have grown in value from zero to $5 million. If, however, the husband, for different reasons or, or for any kind of legitimate reasons, had gone out and borrowed $6 million, uh, his net family property has not, in fact, increased in that scenario. Because he has the, the outstanding debt. Absolutely. It's all, it's all taken into account in the aggregate. You can never look at one asset and say, I want my half. And that, that's very often what uh, clients will say to me, particularly as it relates to pensions. They will say, I want half the pension. Well, as a general rule, that is not going to happen in Ontario. The value of the pension may be included in the net family property, but in all likelihood, the pension is not going to be divided in two. Now, Jim, in order to avoid all this infighting when it comes to money, especially when there's been an acrimonious dispute can a couple, prior to their marriage, enter into an agreement to address these financial issues? Yes, and it doesn't even need to be prior to the marriage. It can be at any time prior to separation. So these are what we would call marriage contracts. They're a form of domestic contract that is authorized specifically under the Family Law Act again. So um, you're correct to say most of them are uh, negotiated and signed pre-marriage, Lou, but um, certainly there have been many instances in which I have been involved where the contract has in fact been negotiated after the marriage. Those contracts allow the spouses to basically deal with all of the issues that it might arise on the separation uh, of their, of their uh, marital union 
um, with a, a couple of limited exceptions. You cannot deal with custody of children, most obviously. And the one, one exception that might surprise people is that there's a prohibition against dealing with the rights to possession of the matrimonial home. So in other words, that's something that can't be um, derogated from by way of the contract. Exactly. So it, it, even if the contract says if we separate, wife will leave a home owned by husband within uh, 60 days, it's simply not enforceable. Well, then what is the, the laws and rules surrounding the possession of the matrimonial home? Um, the possession of the matrimonial home is governed by Part 2 of the Family Law Act, and uh, both spouses have a right to possess the home regardless of ownership. So if, even if one spouse owns it, uh, the other spouse is entitled to reside there unless a judge is convinced it is necessary to make an order for exclusive possession. And all of this can be addressed with the exception of those two issues, the custody and the uh, possession of the matrimonial home can be addressed in advance by way of this contract. Yes. Now, can that contract be amended from time to time by the, by the two parties? Yes. Um, I, I've been involved in several circumstances where the parties have had a contract for a period of time. They determine that the provisions are no longer fair. They no longer want them to be operative. And as long as both parties agree they can execute a new agreement to either change or modify the old agreement. Okay, and now when we come to modification of the agreement or or signing of a new agreement, can the parties do that without a lawyer or without legal advice? That's not advisable. Um, The parties absolutely do not have to have a lawyer, but in order to have a valid contract, they need to understand the terms of the contract in their totality. So probably advisable for people to have a lawyer review the contract for them and provide them with independent legal advice. I especially think that might be true when later on down the road, 10 or 15 years later, uh, when the bloom is off the rose more or less, uh, somebody who has signed the contract will come back and say, I had no idea what I was signing at that time. Does that ever happen? (laughs) Surprisingly, yes, it happens all the time, Lou. that, That, of course, is one of the first lines of attack on a contract is that there wasn't sufficient legal advice, that there was a non-es factum argument, a lack of understanding. Um, uh, of course, the other uh, prime uh, candidates to upset the validity of an agreement are duress, coercion, and lack of financial disclosure. So lack of financial disclosure can, also, can be an, a reason why that contract signed could be set aside by the court. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So then... It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, that if you want a good, valid, binding marriage contract, go get a lawyer to draft it and then get, make sure that your, other, your spouse gets independent legal advice before they sign it. Yes, and, and, and if, to further promote the validity and binding nature of the contract, make all the disclosure you can think of making at the outset. It's, it's to your advantage to make as much financial disclosure as possible, as accurately as possible. As always, good advice, Jim. And if our listeners want to get a hold of you, where can they reach you? They can reach me by email at jedney at blaney.com, J-E-D-N-E-Y at B-L-A-N-E-Y dot com, or my direct phone line is 416-593-3996. Thank you for this, Jim. Thank you, Lou. Thank you.